You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. We're going to get into 1 Peter. Uh, it's a message about what it means to be a royal priesthood, um, an exiled nation, a city within a city. And so um, I'm excited about that in the, in the sense that 1 Peter, I think, tells us not only who we are as individual sons and daughters, but also who we are as a family and what it means to be a different kind of family. Um, as that word gets tossed around so much. So I'm excited about next week as we kind of get into that. We usually go through books of the Bible left to right. But, um, but just for the sake of today, um, I just wanted to get into one little passage here in 1 John uh, for the morning. Um, as we get back into the rhythm of the fall, get back into school, get back into calendar mode, get back into cardigans and turtlenecks or whatever you guys do, boots. Uh, as we change seasons, um, it, what, is it, what does it look like to... Um, get our hearts before the Lord and put him first as we, as we, and worship first as we change seasons. And so there's a blessing in 1 John that I wanted to read over us. It comes at the very end of 1 John chapter 2 um, that, that is about sonship. And I, and I thought we would, we would look at it as we kind of change the calendar year and think about um, what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I had lots of great friends when I was, it was so fun for me this week to think about and reminisce about the friendships that I had when I was six or seven. I was an only child, and so my friends were like my brothers, and you know, you would fight it out sometimes, and like, maybe cuss like sailors around each other, or cuss at each other, and you know, get crazy sometimes with these guys, but for the most part, you know, when you were seven years old, you just had no worries in the world, and you were, uh, had all the time in the world, and all you could do was hang out. There wasn't this political divide, and work stuff, and business stuff, and jealousy, and rivalry all the time. It was just hanging out traded baseball cards, and there was something pure about that connection. I remember uh, one of my, my good friends, uh, Daniel Drapkin, I've talked about a few different times. Daniel Drapkin was from Canada. He was my first buddy uh, from like, and they spoke French, and they were from Quebec and all that kind of stuff, and they were a fun, fun little family, and Daniel had all the toys. Like, I could never have as many toys as Daniel. You just have a friend that's like, I don't have all these toys, but I know Daniel, so I can go hang out with him. And I always remember Daniel went to the karate uh, place across the street that was almost like that feeling that you felt like they were probably the bad guys in the Karate Kid movies rather than the good guys. Like they had like the black jerseys with like the gear with like the tiger like written down the side of it kind of a thing. And so anyways, um, that was always, I think, more of an expensive karate studio that they went to that I didn't go to, but uh, loved hanging out with Daniel. Um, my friend Matt Tanzi was uh, kind of built like a tank, short and 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 built more like a football player. So we didn't do karate. We did football with him. And uh, I remember we used to live in Crestwood Apartments growing up, and they used to have these clothes hangers because I don't think they had any washer and dryers in the units. And so we would use the clothes hangers as first down markers and fight over like where the ball landed to play, play football. These were good. Um, we never played uh, the NFL, I swear. It doesn't play uh, as rough and tumble football as we used to play when we were about seven or eight years old. Uh, lastly, I was reminded this week of, um, John, of uh, Mark James Robert Perez. And my mom and I laugh about that because I knew his middle name because he always get in trouble. And you know, when your mom's in trouble, they card, not just call you first and last name. They call you by all of like your government name, your full name, the one that God gave you and the one that Uncle Sam has on registry. But Mark James Robert Perez uh, was a great guy. And um, and he ended up like, I always feel sad because Mark started piano class the same day as me. But if you're like me, you know, you started the piano class and then you just quit. You know, that was like your right to rebel against your parents. You can pay for these piano lessons, but I'm not going to be a piano player. I don't care how much you make it, you know. But Mark actually did. And now he's on Instagram. And every time I see him, he's playing like Mozart and Bach and all this stuff. And I was like, he was wise. I was a fool. I missed it. Missed the bus, you know. 
But those are sweet memories, right? Like when we go back into that seven-year-old version of ourselves, there wasn't boundaries and barriers. There wasn't, you know, racial lines and political lines. There wasn't uh, business stuff and there wasn't work and distance and moving and all that kind of stuff. There was just friendship. You remember when you would go to college and all you'd have is that stupid meal card and dorm rooms and Xbox and like community and connection was just the overflow of everything that was going on. And then, and then, and then, and then you got older and where it is you had time and no money. Now you have a little bit more money, but it seems like you have less and less time. And even more than that, you have more and more walls. You have more and more grudges. You have more and more uh, hurts and anxieties and, and insecurities that you have. And you're wondering and calculating when you're with people um, if they're really for you or against you, if you're really being heard or misheard or misunderstood. And the connection that was so easy to have when you were young um, is now harder and harder to find. The belonging is harder and harder to find. It's kind of sad. I, I remember uh, when I was uh, married, when me and Kyra got married in 2005, I was probably like seven or eight guys in the wedding and those were all, all my buddies, but I don't know if I even keep up with them anymore. You know, especially for men, I think it's difficult. Like men struggle to find connection, to continue to find something to collect on. It's not even just always about the busyness or, um, or the logistical situations of, of just day-to-day life, the practical situations of community. There's something, it seems like there's deeper that even, even for men, especially for women as well, that we can find our, our, ourselves around people, but so lonely at the same time. I was at like this um, Maple Street Cafe the other day and um, the guy had me up there and I ordered like bacon and eggs and pancakes and then all of a sudden as soon as I put in my order I was supposed to give him my favorite song because nowadays when you order the food they don't just like call out pancakes they call out your favorite song and I was like caught off guard by it so I said Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog and I really wish I would have gotten that back I really wish I would have said something you know fight for your right to party your beastie boys or something like that but I didn't I said Rainbow Connection so they yelled it out and I was like in shame like coming up to get my pancakes <laughs> sat down and it was like so sad you know, at Starbucks, they know what they're doing, man. They get your name, they get the number. They're, 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 they know that what we are doing, even when we are just looking for pancakes and eggs and coffee, we are not just looking for pancakes and coffee and places to work out. We're looking for that connection. We're looking for a place to be known, a place to know and be known. And they know what, what they are doing when they're asking your name, even when you go through the drive-thru and writing your name down or asking what your favorite song is when you go to the restaurant because they're buying and selling uh, something not just that we want, but something that we need. We are all longing for connection. And doesn't it puzzle you sometimes? I and mean, you really think about that, like that we live in a world that's more more and more wired for connection. We live in a world where even the way we consume media is a two-way street. It's not just a one-dimensional thing where we watch TV anymore. There's likes and subscribes and retweets and all these kind of things. Like we have the platform now to share and we have more opportunity to share and connect more than ever, but more and more in all that connection, we can't seem to get our arms around actual community and actual belonging. What does it mean that we are dying on the inside, longing for belonging? The world is increasingly being engineered for connection, but yet so many of us feel so alone in the crowd of people that we live in. So many of us would say we are not known and we do not know others. And so um, the scripture comes to us today to speak to us about that. God wants to be known and he wants to know us. I mean, eternal life, you know, Jesus says is not just where we go when we die. Eternal life is to know him. It's what John says and Jesus says in John 17 to know him. And our purpose, even as uh, I think Taylor read about it earlier in John 17, high priestly prayer, his prayer is that we would know each other, that we would be one as the Father and the Son and Spirit were one, that we would be one. And all, and all of this desire and wiring for connection, it seems that we struggle, we struggle to find it. Uh, but Genesis 2, you know, is telling us, Genesis 3 and 2, 2 into 3 rather, is telling us is that, uh, that, our, that our struggle with connection and, and belonging is, is, is actually far deeper than our calendar and our, even our politics. And it's, 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 it's more than just the distances we live apart from each other. It's deeper than that because uh, what we find in Genesis 3 is a prophetic, you know, dec- really a prophetic truth and reality <clears throat> that the reason why we lack in community and connection is not so much that we 
um, are distracted from it, but that we hide from it, that we're afraid of it. Genesis uh, 3 says this famous passage, it says the eyes of both of them were open, talking about Adam and Eve, the ones that were not created to be alone, so God made one another for each other, that they would be one, intimate and naked and unashamed. And it says that at the moment that they sinned, when they took the fruit, they realized that they were naked all of a sudden. The nature of sin is to redefine good and evil on your own terms. And I suppose that if you're in a garden where good and evil is defined by God and we're united on that thing, once that truth becomes vacuumed, now I don't know what you call is good or evil or fat or skinny or tall or smart or wise or unwise or late or early. All of these, all of these um, authority markers of what you believe to be true, right, and beautiful are now in your hands and not in God's hands. And so if I'm sitting across the aisle from you naked, now instead of unashamedness, I am given potentially to rejection and shame. And so they realized that they were naked. And so in that, they realized that that nakedness would no longer be used for intimacy, but for potentially attack. And so they sewed fig leaves from each other and they didn't just run into busyness and schedules and hecticness and all this stuff. They ran into fear and they hid from community rather than sharing in it. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God that was walking in the garden the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord not only from each other and among the trees of the garden and God calls out to those people and probably to us in many ways in parts of our lives where we hide instead of share. We do life alone instead of life together and he asks us this question that he's always asking us, where are you? Where did you go? Because in that longing for acceptance and support and camaraderie and all the things that we know is all that we ever dream for. The thing that we're trying to buy when we go to that Starbucks coffee or we go to the Greenville Commons or we go to these places of community and connection to the gym and so forth. All these things that we long for, we never quite get a grapple of. They're all within that place of shared life with God and with man. We long for it, but at the same time, we're deeply afraid of it. We're afraid of the judgment that might come. We're afraid of the rejection that might come. We're afraid of the neglect or the abuse that comes to truly live openly in front of somebody. And this is exactly where I think that this First John letter and blessing comes about. If you're in First John chapter 1, we're just going to read a couple of verses today. But in First John chapter 1 and 2, um, John is communicating the gospel message of who God is, a God that wants to be known and know others. As in First John 4, as you guys have heard, God is love. Have you ever heard of this verse that First John 4 says that God is love and in him is no punishment and is him is no fear and perfect love is casting out fear. But like two wheels on a bicycle, John is communicating that God wants to be known as love, but God also wants to be known and will be known as light. It is seemingly, I think, a more memorized passage that God is love, but God is not just love and God is also light. And so the theme of the entire book, which we're not going to go through all of it today, is that God is the warmth of connection and fellowship, but also God is the healing truth of the gospel. I'll say that again, that the invitation to life with God and to life with man is not just the warmth of love and connection, but in the same place, living in the light as he in the light, walking in the light, is the healing truth of the gospel. So the driving purpose of John's letter is found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. The purpose of the letter is this, we proclaim to you that we have seen and heard this message, the gospel, so that you also might have fellowship with us. Fellowship is a word that I think we use for chili cook-offs these days or something like that, but you know, fellowship hall. But the fellowship really is a much more deep, 
deeply rooted spiritual word than just showing up in the same building at the same time. Fellowship is having everything in common. Fellowship is shared life, koinonia. Fellowship means that, you know, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Fellowship is a shared life as opposed to a life alone. And so he's saying that fellowship lives in the gospel. That the gospel is the one true place of the longing uh, for belonging that we have. It's the one true place that we'll find it at the foot of the cross. It's in that place and in no other place that we find fellowship with God and man in the light of his gospel. That God is love, but also God is light. God is the warmth of connection as well as the healing truth of the gospel. And it's only in the gospel and in no other place that we will truly find the, um, the meeting of this longing for belonging that we have. And our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So John is a, a letter written in the early church to... Um, a group that we would probably call something around the area of, of Gnosticism. Gnosticism is not agnosticism, but Gnostic uh, is a disassociation between uh, belief and action. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a fatalism of sorts that if I believe rightly, then all that matters is my uh, theology without my practice. It's this belief that I can believe in something and all that I need to you know, know and the things that I know is really what brings about my wholeness, my salvation, my healing. And John is standing in the face of that and saying, there is no such thing as a Christian that talks about things without walking about things. There's no such thing as a, as a disassociation between theology and doxology and practice. And so there's this call to not just know about the light or talk about the light, but to live in the light, to walk in the light. You ever hear the DC talk song, right? To walk in the light as he is in the light. That's the invitation. That's what they're talking about. And the idea here is that to talk about something without walking in something is, is not full gospel at all. The gospel is both... Uh, word and deed. And so I, I had this picture and it's kind of like a incendiary kind of um, extreme picture, but we got it uh, in the back for this service. I forgot last time of this um, history picture that I remember teaching about back in when I used to teach U.S. history of uh, a, a clan uh, gathering in the middle of a church. Isn't that crazy? A clan gathering where the preacher and the priest is there and all the members are there and there's a clan gathering. And in the back of the room, the ironic statement there is that Jesus saves isn't that crazy? Isn't that just such a, a hyperbolic, tense picture? In the sense that this church is gathered and their doctrine is right, but their practice is disassociated. That what they believe is true is not what they believe in practice. And so there is a possibility that, this is what John would argue, in all different churches, in all different cultures, whatever the culture is, obviously this is extremely toxic, kind of extreme just to prove a point, that it is possible to um, have a theology that doesn't match in your culture, that you are not practicing. And so as you take that picture down, it's like uh, we could easily jump on the bandwagon and, you know, demonize that group. Obviously, there's a lot of injustice and wrongness that's going on in there, but we could certainly fall for the same ploy, which is to believe that God is light without walking in it, without knowing in the, in the relational sense the healing truth of, of the gospel. And so I've been doing some thinking, you know, this, this week, and, and I think that's what this blessing that I'd like to read at the very end of, um, of the, the first John letter is, um, is, is, we swim, I mean, we, we are called and belong to a kingdom gospel culture, but we swim in an American one. We swim in a modern culture. And this, this blessing that I want to read, ultimately, um, it, it's this blessing that John reads in the sense that as we, are, as we are finding our belonging, our fellowship, our koinonia with God and with others, we not only find God and others, but we also find ourselves. We find our identity again. And it's in this place where the gospel really saturates our lives and saturates our conversations and doesn't just saturate our, our, the, the way that we think, but also saturates the way that we live, that we get back our very selves. We get back our lives. 
And so, actually, let me just read, let me just read the blessing, and then I want to come back to it, but I'll just read it ahead of time in the service. But this is what John's going to say at the very end about who we are in the light as children, who we are, who we are as individuals, but then also who we are as a group. He says, listen, I'm writing you this to tell you about the light because I want you to know the world will never agree with the gospel on this, but you're a child of God. And you're not a commodity to be bald or sold, and you're not a, just a collection of ideas or atoms or molecules. You have an identity. You have a purpose. You've been bought with a price, and you're a child. And you're no bigger than that or smaller than that. You're not a celebrity. You're not a superstar. You're not, um, you're not a political ideal. You're a child. You've been forgiven by the Father because of the blood of Jesus. You're a father, is what he says. In verse 12, I'm writing you, dear children, because you are forgiven in God's name. Verse 13, I'm writing you fathers because you know him and he is the one that's from the beginning. There's no such thing as a critic in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's the thing is we like buy and sell these famous books. There's celebrity pastors and celebrity brands and we sell these books and there's this idea that like we're just here to be connoisseurs of, of thought as though Christianity is about thinking and not practicing. And there's this lie that takes into our hearts, I think, in the middle of the age to believe in doctrine but not in culture and become critics instead of fathers. But anything that we would correct would only be to admonish and build somebody up. And if we would ever sense in our heart that we're just putting somebody down rather than building somebody up, we should withhold at all costs because the gospel is not here to be a critic, but to be a father. I'm writing you, young men, because you have, over, you have overcome the evil one by the blood of the lamb. And so this is the idea. is like, what does it mean to live in the kingdom and for the kingdom, but in the middle of an American culture? The, the gospel is telling us through the book of John, 1 John, if not any other, every other place, is that there are no celebrities. These are three words that I thought of. There are no celebrities in the light. This is what it is. We're called out of life alone into life together. And we're finding that the gospel does offer us support and acceptance and care, but it also offers us healing and truth and transformation. And the light of the gospel is not just a warm invitation of love and acceptance. It is a healing truth. And in that healing truth, we are not just finding one another, we're finding ourselves. We're getting our life back again. And we are not celebrities, we are sons and daughters. Number two, we are not consumers. Right? The consumer ideal is just prevalent. Like they are getting on your phone and they're saying, hey, did you like the Bible app today? How many stars would you get it? Make sure to go and rate us on iTunes and subscribe. Like we get into this entitlement mode that we're here to be a critic and a consumer and a connoisseur of culture. And the Bible is telling us, if you are in the light, you are losing that identity. You have no right to consumerism. You are not a consumer. You are not a critic. You're a father. And lastly, you are not a competitor. The things that you have in this world are not to prove your identity or prove that you're better or worse than anybody else. You, if you have anything, you have what you have to be given away in the gospel. That's what the gospel means. And so what does it mean to fully live in the light? There's no such thing as thinking without doing, and there's no such thing as theology without culture. And living in the light would mean being a son, being a servant, and being, being a steward, a submitted person. This is what uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says, First John, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is the light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So notice that this calling here into the light, into the light is not just you be you. The calling into the light is not just to be comfy and cozy and Christian chicken noodle soup for the teenage heart, right? The calling into the light 
is about finding and restoring identity into deep places. The reason why we are not having community is not because we're too busy. And it's not ultimately because we think too differently. It's because we don't know who we are and we don't know who's bought us and we don't know our place in the world. And so we are looking for our identity in the gyms that we go to and in the politics that we subscribe to. And that identity cannot come from those places. So we only find frustration because identity isn't found in a Starbucks cup. It's found in the blood of Jesus. And so the place that we are longing for is the place that we will find at the foot of the cross. So know who you are. This is, this is the journey that we're taking as we're coming into the light. So the process is that he begins to purify us by his blood. If we claim to be without sin, says John, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and we, he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. It's just like, you know, five or 10 miles into the trail when you're like going up Paris Mountain. It's every step away from kind of the clutter of the day and the calendar that you finally get your soul back again. I mean, that's kind of what rest is. And I guess we should have listened to God in the first place about taking Sabbaths and doing pull away for perspective. Jesus was doing that rhythm and he's called us to do that as well. And so abiding in him means to get away. And so it's like, what is it happening to you as you pull off into kind of an unmaterialized and unconsumer-ridden place that you finally find yourself again. You finally find your home in him, even though you're not even living under, under a roof. And so I was up there just the other day with Kyra, just taking a walk and considering our life and continue, considering our story. And it's such a wonderful light yoke to remember, after all, that we're not ultimately pastors or teachers or preachers, and we're not ultimately even fathers at first, or even husbands first. But before we're pastors, before we're fathers, before we're mentors, before we're husbands and wives or girlfriends or boyfriends or anything else, we're sons of the living God. And is there anything more valuable or more expensive than coming into that place of identity and remembering who we are? The invitation of confession is so much more than just showing up to a small group and admitting to all the bad things that we've done. The invitation of confession is living in light of who you really are in the blood of Jesus all the time. Remember when I was growing up, I was uh, Catholic. And so I remember uh, confession was this kind of crazy thing where you would like go into the wooden box with the priest. You know what I mean? And so you would kind of see a little bit of a vague shadow and silhouette of the priest. And I didn't really know the priest that much. And so you would just dump all of the bad stuff on him from the week and maybe complain a little bit too, but then confess. And it was powerful in the sense that you didn't know the person. There was a little bit of anonymity. So there was a gap and you could feel a bit more comfortable. It's a little bit easier, I would think, honestly, than coming to small group. And then I went to college and confession was this hot seat thing where you'd sit in the hot seat for like five minutes and they can ask you any question that they want. You'd have to answer them full bore. And it was the most uh, sometimes shameful and embarrassing things. And oftentimes when you get into those groups, the guys don't even know what to say. And they're just, they just, uh, you know, they pray for you. And maybe sometimes I know I was in one part of one group that if you did something too bad, they would just get to slug you on the chest too many times. Cause guys like that age don't know what the gospel is yet, I guess. But confession can be, can be a very, very, very interesting thing. But the more and more um, I'm walking out my faith alongside with the people I love and with my community. I'm seeing that confession is not just an event, you know, an event of shame or an event of coming clean or clear. Uh, confession is a way of life. I'm finding that the people that really are growing and, and to know who they are are not so much interested in finding out little checks of things that they're working on or trying to stop doing, but really trying to understand not just the fruit of sin, but the root of it. 
Have you noticed that the people that are continually abiding and walking in a confessional lifestyle are interested in not just the incidences of sin, but the narratives of sin in their life, the deeper sin patterns and why those things are existing. And they're interested in understanding, repenting, not of just the bad things that they're doing, but also the good things that create false narratives in their life that cause the bad things to do. It's kind of like, I remember when Tiger Woods had to reinvent his swing that one time and you know, it's for that whatever 2% that he was trying to, to grow in. I mean, this is the idea of the Christian. What is the Christian repentance model when Jesus says, if you need to cut off your arm, then do it. The harm is an inherently good thing. We could all agree that our eye is a good thing that we would need and use. But he's just saying that in light of sin, sin is not just a headache, it's a cancer. And anything that in your life that is, that is challenging your identity in this um, is not just something to talk about and relieve guilt of, uh, but something to, to repent of that we might fully inherit, not just a greater obedience, but a greater identity in the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to really tell your story? And so we are celebrities in our own right. We are always telling stories. When I ask you how your day was or how your weekend is, you're going to tell a story about a hero and about a problem and about a solution. And my question is, as you tell that story, who is the hero? And what is, what is the victory that is offered at the end of the story? Because here's the thing, whether you know the gospel or you don't know the gospel, it wouldn't matter in the context of the community if you don't share it. If the gospel is not a part of our ongoing story, that we are not ultimately dreamers that are coming off to, you know, fulfill our dreams or, you know, wives that are secretly suffering under our jerk husbands or uh, first-generation college graduates, like, there is no other story. There's two stories. There's a story of forgiven sons or any other story that's a lie. And so what does it mean to fully embody in these stories as we tell the stories that we tell do we tell them with him as the hero or somebody, or somebody else? Because here's the thing. If you are continually telling the story where you're the hero or you're continuing to tell the story where you're the victim or you're continuing to tell the story where you're the bad guy that needs to get blamed, what is not being told about that story is who you are as a son, as a forgiven son. And the stories we tell collect the characters around us. Let me say that again. The scripts that we're talking about and the stories we continually tell continue to create characters and plot lines around us that will emphasize that story. And so what the gospel is telling us is to live in the light is confession. There are no superheroes in the kingdom of heaven. And telling stories of great gospel narrative of, of healing and, 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 and being a son and being forgiven and being in that place creates a world around us. World create, words create worlds. And, and as we tell our story, are we telling the gospel story or something else? Being in the light means to confess and to find our healing. The second thing that I see is in, in verse... Uh, uh, this is one now, chapter two. It says, my dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only of ours, but of all the sins of the whole world. And so I know five points of Calvinism is a clean little box that we can put our theologies in, but there's an interesting thought there. The atoning sacrifice of our sins is not for us, but it's for the whole world too. Anyway, just a thought. Verse three, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, Jesus commands, is a liar and the truth is not in the person. So notice how the light here is not just about showing up to a small group to share your deepest, darkest secrets, and now it's in the light. But the light here is confessing those things, laying down the sins, and then taking up truth. Did you see how, how mutually exclusive that John is saying that a person that's living in truth is not just confessing sins, but embracing truth. And the person that's not embracing truth as they're confessing sin is just as much in the dark as somebody doesn't confess in the first place. A person living in, in, in light 
in the light of the gospel, necessarily loves the commands of Jesus. Anybody who says they're in the light, anybody who says, I know him, but does not do what Jesus commands is a liar. The truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know that we are in, in him. Whoever claims to live in him, in the light, lives as Jesus did. And so um, what do you do when somebody does confess to you? When somebody calls up and comes clean and, and talks about a destructive um, thing in their past, are you tempted to judge them? Are you tempted to look down on them? Does it change your relationship with them? The, the gospel is saying, and John is saying, that the gospel should necessarily change the way we pick up the phone, the way we answer it, and the way we talk to people that come, come to us and confess our sins. That is telling us everything, a lot of what we need to know about where we think we sit in the story of the gospel. I had a, um, a friend of mine uh, call me a, a few months back, and, um, and really in the wake of um, a whole earthquake within his life where a bunch of stuff began to fall down with his marriage was in, 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 at stake because of some of these sin patterns and his job was at stake and his kids were at stake and so forth. He, he kind of had nowhere else to run and, and kind of came clean. A, a Christian brother just admitted to some of this, of this stuff, deep, even heart level uh, dysfunction and brokenness, you know. And what do you do when somebody comes, comes clean like like? What do, you, what do you do? What a sacred moment when, when we really come, you know, either naked and shamed and naked and unashamed. And how do you handle that? And how do you run the tension of the gospel of living in the love of God and in the light of the gospel? And this is what came to my mind. And, and I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit would guide you in, in different ways. But what came to my mind to tell this brother on the other end of the phone was first and foremost, first and foremost, that I wanted him to know that both as he was committing the sin that he was committing continually, and both in the time as he was running from confessing the sin, as he was deceiving others and so forth, and, and the time that he confessed the sin, that none of those times was making God or causing God to love him any more or any less. I wanted him to know that God loved him. That's the number one thing that I wanted him to know. I wanted him to know that the love of God um, was probably not just getting challenged or threatened, was actually just getting started in terms of its, its rays and its beam being able to touch this guy. I wanted him to know because I know and you know that within the place of guilt and shame is this prison, um, honestly, of pride and works that could start. If I come to this place of brokenness, I need to fix it myself. And I wanted him to know that God loved him if it was fixed or if it wasn't fixed at all. And I secondly wanted him to know that it's grace that his grace ultimately changes us because we're in those positions and we don't want the consequences of those sins so badly so we want to change something and the temptation is to run and to create the, 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 create the lists and create the goals and to start working and white knuckling and bearing down and making it change and, and maybe even I am so, you or me would be so offended or grossed out by that sin that we say, yeah, you really have to work and start to add to that and I just needed to tell myself and to tell him at that moment that the reason why he's here and the reason why God's going to work in his life and is not working in him is not because of his works but because of grace and I needed him to know that. But here's the last thing and this is the thing that really I felt as a, as a conviction on my heart that I did not want to hang up the phone without telling him that the love of God had never loved him any more or another, any less and the grace of God was another more or less powerful than it started. The grace of God is still sufficient for him and for me. And in the grace of God and the love of God, he and I are equals always, as anyone else is at the level of ground of the cross. But the last thing I wanted to say before he hung up the phone is I need you to fight as hard as you've ever fought for your family right now, for your wife right now, and for your kids right now. Because the reality is, is that the light of the gospel is not just bringing us into love, into grace, but also into truth. And if I don't give that man the truth on the other end of that phone, and he comes naked and unashamed before him, and I rob him of the truth, I'm not loving him. I'm, I'm, I'm putting him further into darkness. And so 
And so what, is that, what does that mean to walk in that place that the light comes to bring life and love and comfort, but it also comes to bring honesty. It also comes to bring uh, uh, truth and transparency. And honestly, in this culture, there's such a euphoric feeling of letting your guard down and confessing. But oftentimes I think what it is that we're doing when we're confessing is I want you to hear and accept, but I don't want you to challenge. And really when we're running from community, what we're really running for is that we want the support, we want the acceptance, we want the love, but what we're running from is we're running from the truth, we're running from uh, challenge, and we're running from um, sometimes the sharp healing truth of, of gospel love. And so there's transparency without transformation. I want to be transparent with my small group, but I don't want the truth. And so the call here is both to come into a place of confession, but also a place of transformational truth. All right, lastly, it says this, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one. So 1 John, obviously, we, we pretty much assume that he is the apostle that wrote the book of John, the disciple that Jesus loved and so forth. And so he, he echoes a lot of the upper room discourse and different language that comes from the, uh, the gospel of John, but the new command that Jesus gives in John is echoed here. The new command, he says, is not actually a new one. It's the original one. The new command that I give you, which you had since the beginning, the old command is the message you have heard, Yet I am writing you a new command. It's true, it's seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother and sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister in the dark, is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. It just gives me that picture I used to... Um, you know, before Netflix, there was something called Blockbuster. It was great. And I just miss it. I wish I could go right now with my dad and go pick up Karate Kid 2 movies or whatever. And in Blockbuster, they'd always put the cheap movies up front, the 99 cent ones, so the kids would come in and get the free thing. And if you guys remember this, the, the Blockbuster tapes would just be set there in front and River Runs Wild and, you know, like a dog goes home or whatever that thing is. And they would just sit there and be in the front of the store and the light would just beam down on those tapes. And you remember what happened to the front of those tapes? they would just kind of wash away. They would just kind of wash away into this new, this new kind of a color, this old, faded, weathered color. And that's the picture that I get when the light, when the light of the gospel shines on our life, there's, it's impossible that we will remain unchanged. This is the argument that the Apostle John is making. There is no such thing as an unchanged Christian. That's the power of the gospel, that the gospel covers us and it changes us. It heals us. And that place that we want is also the place that we need. It's on the opposite side of everything we fear the most, of rejection and judgment and shame and condemnation, all these other things. But yet, the Apostle John is communicating to us the gospel. There is no such thing as a doctrine that's written on the wall that's not written in our heart, that isn't practiced. And life done with God, with the warm hand of God in our hand, of God in our hand is, cannot be done apart from the warm hand of a brother or sister with ours. There is no such thing as anonymous Christianity. There is no such thing as hidden Christianity. And so the invitation is to not live in hiding, but to live in the light. All of our healing, all of our transformation, all the love that we long for, it's all in that place at the foot of the cross. It's at that place that we find not only the Father, we find his family. And not only the family, we find ourselves. We get our name back again. This is what's at stake because we live and breathe in a swayed culture. We live and we drift in a consumer culture. And we wake up breathing it. Far before we would ever tell ourselves these messages, we are being hit with the branding of all sorts of other kinds of messages telling us who we are in order to commodify us to get to buy and sell and trade and, 
and so on and so forth. And so this is why he writes us. He writes us about this message because he wants us to know who we are. Ultimately, the journey from aloneness to shared life and life together is the journey to ourselves. It's the journey back home again to the Father and his family. Verse 12 says this, and I read it earlier, but it says this, I'm writing you because you're not celebrities. You are being told to craft a message and a narrative. This is a time when 12-year-olds know how to make TikTok videos about how to communicate brands and what's important. And they could, I mean, they could communicate so much better than I ever did, you know? Because they're put in front of screens and microphones from the day that they're born to communicate a brand. Because if you are not known of, you will not be known. And that's the lie. That if you are not a celebrity, you will not be known. But he's saying to you that, that, that the myth that the myth of commodification of, of our souls and our hearts to become celebrities and icons and symbols and brand names is a lie that will take our very hearts from us. Take, take more than community, community from us. Take our intimacy from us because we are not created to be celebrities, but children. You're called to walk hand in hand with somebody, a long walk with a good friend on a sunny day that the beams of light will continue to hit your life in such a way that as you took one step away from Greenville into Paris Mountain or wherever it is that you walk, to remind you of, that you of who you are, that you are your father's son. You're your father's daughter and nobody should be able to commodify you in that way. You are a dear child. I'm writing you this because the sways of culture are taking you somewhere else than the gospel wants, to be, wants you to be. I'm writing you, dear children, because you're forgiven on the count of his name. And the story that you're telling, the story that you and I are telling should not be about any other brand than his brand and his name. You are a forgiven son. And that is the only name that you will ever have and the only name you will ever need. And there is nothing that can make God love you any more or any less. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you and you are forgiven in his name. And you don't need to give or buy or trade or sell anything to get what you already have in his name. And so you have a great name. This is what he promised Abraham and what he delivered in Jesus. You have a great name, a name that is written in the book of life and you are forgiven in Jesus' name if you're a child of light. Number two, he says, I'm writing you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He wants us to know that in the gospel, there are no critics. We sign away our entitlement to critique and use negative um, vilification and, and chastisement and anger and self-righteousness over anybody else. Because of how much we've been forgiven, we have no leverage over anybody else or entitled to anybody else as though they're a commodity for us. And so we are brothers and sisters serving brothers and sisters. There are no critics or, you know, uh, Christian connoisseurs in this thing. There is only brothers and sisters serving brothers and sisters. And so I'm writing this because this is not just about your doctrine. This is about your identity. You're not a critic. You're a father. You're a mother. And you know him. And your job is to make him known. And you've been given this position to oversee and to care and to nurture, not to critique. I am writing you, young men, because... You have overcome the evil one. I'm writing you, dear children, because you know the Father. I'm writing you, fathers, because you know who, him, who uh, is from the beginning. I'm writing you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God is in you. I'm writing you because you have overcome the evil one. It's almost like he's saying it two or three different times to remind you of who you are as though the message he knows, the message of the culture, is gonna sway us and stray us so much from the truth. But the gospel is not just love and the gospel is not just ideas. It is light. And the light permeates anything. It will take up any space that you will give it. And if you turn on the light right now in the darkness, the darkness is excavated. 
There is no darkness in God and there's no shadows in God and there's no hiding in God. And I'm just saying, you know, don't overshare with people and that doesn't mean that we just share everything with everybody, but it does mean you, some, it does mean you share something with everybody. And it does necessarily mean you share every, everything with somebody because your story is facilitating the characters around you. And so we are only living in one place, says the gospel, in the dark or in the light. And there's only one place that we will find our healing, only one place we find our transformation. It will not just be in a good book and a warm bath. It will be in the, the day in, day out, hand in hand, walking alongside with God with one another that we will find ourselves again. We will not only find the Father and the family, but we will find ourselves, our very souls again. And so again, walking in the light, walking in the light, it does, it means that there, it, walking in the light means there are no celebrities, only sons. Walking in the light means there's no consumers. It's I want to submit to you. I want to follow the command. Walking in the light means I follow all the commands, especially the highest one, which is to love my neighbor and love uh, the Lord God. And lastly, there are no competitors. There are only servants. What I have is only here to build you up. What I have is not to put you down. What I have is to build you up. That is all that I have. I have no resource that is only for my own commodification, for my own self-protection, self-preservation. I have no competition against you. I'm not in competition with you, and you are not in comp- competition with me. I have what I have to steward what God has given you and what God has given me. So it is in the light that we find family in ourselves. So I want to close uh, today as we kind of look forward into uh, the fall a little bit. It is a time that we start to make decisions about our calendar and what our rhythms will look like. And the New Testament church, the word is not accidental. It is devoted. Acts 2 says they didn't accidentally end up in fellowship and accidentally end up in the Bible and accidentally end up in healing and confession and transformation. They chose to do it by devotion. A high regard for something bigger and more enduring and more everlasting than my regular nine to five, a story, if you will, that will go longer and root deeper than my own personal individualized autonomous story. It is a devotion to the bread and fellowship that ultimately builds the family. And so they were devoted to one another and to the breaking of bread and to the apostles' teaching and to, uh, and many gathered and, and, and were without need and so on and so forth. And so I want you to consider as you gather into groups and there are gonna be new groups that are starting as well as groups that will continue, but each group is just made of many members and each member has to make the decision at the front door. Will I live in hiding or will I live unhidden? Because you can still, even in a group of seven to 12, you can still hide. You can still live with some of your life shared, but some of your life hidden. And just mark his words, if not what we're discussing today, our sway and tendency is to hide. We start behind the fig tree. We start behind the fig leaf, and God continues to ask us that imperative question, where are we? Where are you? Where are we? We will be devoted, is what the passage says, if we're endowed by the Holy Spirit and filled with him, to share our life and not hide it, to share our prayers and not hide it. Many of us, I think, are scared to pray out loud. We might say something dumb or, we, you know, we don't consider ourselves a public speaker or, we, you know, we just, you know, read in Matthew that we shouldn't have long phylacteries and long prayers and so forth. But here's the thing, and you probably agree with me. I don't really know anyone that's thriving in Jesus that doesn't love to pray. I don't know anybody that's thriving in Jesus that isn't confident and growing in confidence and boldly praying with one another, not just by yourself. It's in those places that our prayers begin to see light. Like, think about that. Like, our sins need to see the light, but our prayer needs to see the light. And what we speak with each other and how we speak to each other and how we pray tells us everything about who we are. We need to continually remind each other because the world sways the wrong direction out of intimacy into 
um, into isolation, we need to continue to remind together that we're not commodities, we are sons and daughters. And so what does it look like for us to gather and share our prayer? And not just to see prayer as a transition between eating chips and talking about the Bible, but to see prayer as a destination. It's in prayer that we speak with the Father, and he says, anytime that two or more are gathered and pray together in my name out loud, I want to challenge you, even as introverts, to pray out loud and to grow in that gift to pray out loud that we share our prayers and not hide them. Number two, as you come into group, it is your decision to hide or share your struggles. You can tell your story however you want, and you can morph the scale to admit that you do wrong, but overall the story is that you're the hero. But the gospel is saying that we will find no light and find no healing and find no transformation in stories that only make us the hero and neglect Jesus. There is only one story, and every other story is a lie, and that story is this, that you are not a superhero. You are a son or a daughter saved by the blood of Jesus, and so in that, how are you sharing stories of scale? Are you sharing your struggles as much as you're sharing your celebrations? That is for your decision to make, and the, the culture of the community can choose to put the Bible in the corner at the center, but if doctrine is in the center of our culture, then we will share our struggles because there's only one story. There's a story of the forgiven son and the forgiven daughter or the false one. Number three is, what if we shared our truth? Oftentimes, you know, they tell you, don't talk about religion and politics. Well, maybe don't talk about politics, but certainly it's time to talk about the gospel and you're not loving anybody that you're not sharing the truth with. And ultimately, your truth, if it's not able to be shared publicly within that group, might be half-baked. And sometimes your lowercase t truth needs to be my lowercase t truth so we might find the capital T truth. And oftentimes what we're doing when we're hiding our truth away is we don't want it to be challenged, provoked, shaped, or sharpened. So we keep it in the corner and we don't talk about politics. We don't talk about religion because we don't want it to get challenged. And what if my version of truth isn't actually true? So the, so, the, so the call of community and fellowship and discipleship is to bring our truth and not to hide it, to bring our needs. Some of us are great givers and not great receivers. Some of us are great. We love to give. But when it comes time to really come forward and say, I really need prayer, I'm struggling, I'm not doing good. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. I need, I need the Lord. I need you. I need you to pray for me. This is a beautiful place that we both lose our grip on our own control, but we also find our healing at the very same place to share our needs and not hide them. To not live in the dark, but to live in the light. And lastly, to share our walk. Oftentimes the reason why we don't, I think personally, I don't share my walk and share my next steps is because when you name and, 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 and declare what your next step of faith is, you're all of a sudden accountable to it. I don't want to tell you what God's telling me to do because if I do, it's going to be obvious when I don't do it, <laughs> Right? But this is what it's saying is that we are supposed to sharpen each other and we're supposed to bring truth and light and love and healing all in the name of the gospel because the gospel is not just something to talk about. It's something to walk about. It's something to do and practice with our day-to-day life. And so I want to call you into group. But when I say that, I don't just mean sign up online. I'm saying come unhidden to group. Share your prayer. Share your struggles. Share your celebrations. Share your life. Share your truth. Share your needs and possessions. Share your walk. This is where we're called to be. We will find healing. We will find belonging. We will find truth in no other place than the foot of the cross gathered in fellowship with one another. Life with him and life with others. The koinonia, the shared life where everything is in common with him. I want to invite Tom to come forward and host our time of communion today. The bread and the cup is a perfect way to celebrate what it means um, to have fellowship in him and him alone. And so I'm going to pray for us as you guys kind of prepare for communion. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.